everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. And this is a landmark SALT Talk today. I'm broadcasting live for the first time in 2020 uh, from Skybridge HQ here in Manhattan. Contrary to popular belief, Manhattan is still here. It's not the wasteland that many people uh, conveyed to me that it is, and it's great to be back in the office. We're going to start uh, slowly getting back to normal here at, at Skybridge and Salt, so it's great to be here, and, and uh, obviously I have a new background here for those who have been recurring listeners. But Salt Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during this work-from-home period uh, with some of the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do is replicate the experience that we provide at our Global Salt Conference series which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a uh, platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome two uh, FinTech entrepreneurs who are definitely shaping the future of the financial industry, as well as the uh, technology world. Uh, that's Michael Wise and Gil uh, Mandelsis to Salt Talks. Uh, Michael is the founder and the president of Yield Street. He's responsible for Yield Street's investment strategy and originator network and has overseen more than 900 million in transactions over the course of his career. Uh, he began his career at a $1.2 billion New York based credit fund, working his way up to vice president before co-founding his own fund in 2013. During his 10 years on the institutional side of the business, he grew frustrated that access to su superior wealth creation opportunities, it wasn't quite as accessible to the individual investors. So in 2015, with that in mind, he teamed up with Milind Mahir to create Yield Street, which sort of democratizes access to the alternative investment world. Uh, Gil is the founder and CEO of Capitolis, which is a leading software as a service platform driving financial resource optimization for capital markets. He's an award-winning serial entrepreneur and industry executive in the fintech space with a successful record of creating disruptive products and companies and leading them through global scaling. Prior to Capitolis, uh, Gil was the CEO of EBS Broker Tech, which is NEX Group, formerly ICAP. It's their foreign exchange and fixed, fixed income electronic markets business. He served as a member of ICAP's global executive management group. And before EBS Broker Tech, he was the CEO of Triana, which was a post-trade processing company he founded in 2000. Uh, he, uh, Triana was, uh, it was featured in a Kellogg Business School business case study that was written about Gil. Uh, he was also a member of the New York Federal Reserve's Foreign Exchange Committee, the Bank of England's Joint Standing Committee, and the Bank of Canada's Foreign Exchange Committee. Just a reminder, uh, if you have any questions for Gil or Michael during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen within the Zoom window. And hosting today's interview will be Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, as well as the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony. Okay, well, I just want to thank the Academy for giving me the Room Raider Award on this particular SALT conference. Your three Room Raiders look terrible. I think mine looks great. This is the first time that I actually beat John Dorsey. So I just would like to thank my mom and dad and other members of the Room Raider Academy. Uh, but Gil, let's go to you first, okay, Gil, because you have this amazing career and you, you, how'd you get it started? Tell us a little bit about the family you grew up in and how you took this trajectory with your life. 
Yeah, so uh, thank you and thanks for having uh, me. Uh, and uh, so I grew up in Israel and I grew up to a, a, you know, a, a very, um, I would say, a culturally minded and socialist uh, family. And my calling was actually to be a uh, professor of sociology. So I started thinking very early on about society structures and what is the right structure and uh and i started making myself all the way from marx from marx all the way to capitalism where i uh which is where ultimately i landed as a mark as a, as a society structure that is very compelling and uh and therefore was very attracted to uh the capital of capitalism which is the us and came here and uh became a fintech entrepreneur that was way before fintech was was hot. Actually, fintech in 2000 was well, it wasn't a term, but financial technology was actually a really bad word. If you wanted to raise money from venture capital, especially in the Silicon Valley back then, financial technology was the last thing you wanted to say. But um, my focus was and still is on if capitalism is important, capital markets make capitalism available or possible, and the structure and the infrastructure for this market is something that is very near and dear to my heart. So I think a lot about global market infrastructure, global market structure, and how to make it more robust and how to introduce innovation that is going to push uh, the agenda further. Before I get to Michael, and just a quick answer, you give me a short answer to this. Uh, so our, our capitalist model is under siege. There's a lot of income disparity, and it seems like uh, the people that I grew up with uh, Michael aren't doing as well as they used to. You know, we I sort of grew up in this aspirational blue collar family. Most of those families now are economically desperational. Is that a byproduct of capitalism, or is that something we can fix? Well, I think that I think it's both, right? So I don't think capitalism is perfect by any means, and I think there are a lot of things that are broken and should be fixed. But I would also say that working from within capitalism on improving it. Uh, is is probably a better solution than just throwing the baby uh, you well know. you and i agree on that michael let's turn over to you and the famous yield street so what happened there how'd you get this thing going uh what did your parents think you were going to be when you were growing up and how did you end up here <laughs> all right so um <clears throat> i'm a native new yorker Grew up uh, on Long Island to uh, a nice, uh, quite nice area. Right, what town? Uh, we're going to do Italian Jewish geography for people that don't live on Long Island. So go ahead. What town? Here we go. I grew up in a town called Lawrence, which is in the five Lawrence. towns. Okay, you're in the five towns. Okay, sure. So I, I, grew I, up used there. To, I used to hang out in Oceanside at that Nathan's when I was a kid, right? My uncle owned that motorcycle shop in Port Washington. We used to go down to Nathan's for those uh, Tuesday night events. It's like which our always, backyard. Which always, which always brought the cops, but that's a whole other topic. Okay, so, so go ahead. So you're growing up in Lawrence. Your parents think you're going to be what? Uh, my parents think I'm going to probably be like a doctor or a lawyer, you know, a good Jewish family. Okay, um, good, of course. Thank you. appreciate it. The truth Dar is... Dar uh, Darcy's parents thought he was going to be a banker. Trust me. They thought he was going to, he thought he, they thought he was going to look like the guy in the Monopoly board. But you two uh, were like- We're both terrible disappointments. The other one was a yeah, doctor. Exactly. I, was, I was supposed to be landscaping your yards, just so everybody's clear. Of, and look at us now, we're all here on the salt talk. All right, so go ahead. So, so what happened? So uh, I got enamored by the financial markets, like trying to understand what risk means, even as a young kid. 
and how investor appetite works and where people put their money and how markets change. I'll be honest and say that when I thought I was enamored by it, I had no idea what it actually meant. Uh, but it was interesting to me. And like growing up as a kid that would spend some time in the city and sort of cut school to jump on the LIRR and go hang out, the energy that was in New York City and sort of seeing all these you know, huge buildings in Wall Street really had me um, very interested. So as I started my career, I started to think about you know, what really is the power of capital? How can you use capital to change the world? Is it by investing and helping create jobs, by supporting entrepreneurs to get ahead? You talk about the you know, sort of wealth disparity, income disparity. Those are, are topics that have always been incredibly interesting to me, and we should jump into that. And then on the other side of that is how do you help people achieve those financial ambitions, right? And how do you use you know, your skill set, your ability, and the broader capital in the investment market to make a bigger difference? And that's really what got me into, into being excited about you know, financial markets and investing overall. Yield Street was sort of the next generation, right? So I started out doing some regular, I would say, run-of-the-mill asset-based lending, nothing too exciting, you know, supply chain financing, receivable financing, et cetera. And what I quickly learned was that inefficiency in certain subsets of the market can often lead you to have more attractive yield, right? And what ultimately became, uh, you know, sort of front and center to me was that the income disparity that's really going on is as a result of education, jobs, and then lack of access. And leveraging data and technology to create access can really change the future and help people get to their financial ambitions. And that's really how Yale Street got started. That's what I've gotten incredibly excited about. And uh, that's what led me here today. And well, first of all, congratulations. Amazing career for both of you guys. But uh, Michael, I want to ask a little bit about the role of technology in the pre-COVID environment. And how does it look now in the post-COVID environment based on your commercial experience? So, you know, the, the front half of that question is, is, uh, is pretty broad. So I'm, I'm going to dig into it a little bit. I think that we could all agree that technology um, has brought our lives to a whole different place and we see it you know, evolving year over year. If you sort of think about um, basic interactions with your financial well-being, whether it's your trading stock or your interactions with your retirement accounts, with your credit card, with your, you know, how you go about getting a mortgage, et cetera. So we've seen a tremendous amount of advancements in technology. I think the question really is like, what real innovation have we seen? And as people talk about FinTech. So as I think about FinTech, it's really the partnership between traditional financial services and technology to enable something even better, a better experience, better access, better outcome. And when you really take the time to think about where has true innovation happened in financial services, it's not a whole lot. So it's happened in the payment space and it's happened in the distribution space, but sort of finding more websites to identify investors, to borrow money more or to find a better credit card or a better mortgage supplier is not true innovation. So I think that what you're seeing over the last number of years pre-COVID is this buildup and acceptance of technology and how it's enabled banks and other financial companies to advance and to make progress and to streamline things to make the business more efficient. What you're seeing now and what we'll talk about over the next couple of years is having real true innovation. And I think that, you know, COVID has systematically 
changed a lot of our behavior and it's impacted the sort of financial services market as well. And I'm happy to comment on that whenever you're ready. Yeah, well, let me just fire Gil in here because uh, we're, we're, we're creating a technological asset management salad. So let me just ask Gil to dovetail off of that. So the banks have obviously turned to technology to improve their relationship with the asset management community. So tell us how they've done that and tell us where you think that trend's going. And then I have a question for both of you that will synthesize where you both are. Yeah, so if I just take a step back for a second, just uh, where we're coming from, basically we're trying to bring and borrow a lot of the sharing economy, network economies, a la Uber, uh, Airbnb, and otherwise into the capital markets world with a basic premise that says that on the back of the financial crisis, A, we have fewer banks, B, these banks that used to have basically unlimited amounts of capital and that was very uh, um, and and that was the lowest cost of capital that is out there the regulators on the back of the financial crisis changed the game and to a certain extent rewrote the financial the industrial logic of what is a bank um, in uh, and and very wisely have done that not through a hard and fast Volcker rule, but actually through the economics such that actually the bigger you get, the more expensive your capital is, you could do less things off balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens is 10 years later, and, and it's only going to grow over time, we have fewer banks, global banks with massive infrastructures and capabilities with more and more constraints on their capital and their cost of capital and you have actually much more money out there looking for returns, many more asset managers that are managing significantly more uh, uh, capital and are looking for those services. And there you have a basic, um, uh, a basic uh, tension in the market. So the asset managers can no longer just come to the banks and say, I want you to do this for me. And, and the banks are just gonna say yes, because the equation has changed. So it has to become a much more collaborative model of, of understanding the, um, the supply and demand, the cost of capital, what does it cost for the bank to service me, et cetera. Banks can no longer, obviously if you're Blackstone or, or obviously if you're Skybridge or, or, or if you're uh, PIMCO or BlackRock, you could get any service you want from the large banks when, when you're talking about asset manager number 10,000 without technology and without scale. Uh, without technology that would allow the scale, it's impossible to service those clients and to provide them what they need. So it's a much more collaborative effort between them. Sometimes the banks are suppliers. Sometimes actually the banks are going to be consumers of the asset managers. And you have to provide those platforms that are going to allow them to collaborate. Make, makes total sense. I mean, it's obviously the intersection where everything's happening. So this is a question I have for both of you, I want you to envision where we are five years from now uh, in terms of uh, technological efficiencies and then in terms of uh, product design. Let's start with you, Michael. Uh, you guys have laid out where we were and where we are now, but I guess the question is, where are we going? Sure. So I think um, let, let's zoom out for a second and just focus from a very practical perspective. Sort of what is the business? What do we do? And then you know, what's happening around us in the industry, right? So very simply put, Yield Street's mission is to help millions of people get on a road to financial independence. And we do that by providing them access to what we believe are best in class institutional grade 
alternative investments. Our customers are two sides. On one hand, you have the investors. So you have 200 plus thousand individual investors, high net worth, et cetera. On the other side, you have institutions, banks, hedge fund managers, lenders, et cetera, that are looking for a strategic capital partner. And what Yield Street essentially provides the supply side, so the deal side, the investment opportunity side, is what I like to refer to as distribution infrastructure, right? And in what we, we'll talk about that. And what we provide to the retail side is a new wealth management tool, is a wealth creation tool. So very simply put, you know, our, you know, my partners and my team at Yield Street, are we just, you know, a special breed of genius? No, not, not at all, not even close. Is we were able to, to recognize how a change in a regulatory environment and a change in the capabilities of technology can create an incredible efficiency, ease of use, the digitally native solution, and you can leverage the masses to create financial equality. So when Yield Street takes on a $100 million deal and makes that available fractionally to investors of all different sizes, it is now participating in the same type of deals that your fund or your, or your capital would or banks or hedge funds or et cetera. So what we've been able to do is leverage- Are you like, worried about the risk though? Just, I, I want you to keep going, but so I'm a retail investor. I may not understand the things that the institutional guys are. Are you worried about that democratization? Um, yes and no. So currently our current user base is exclusively accredited investors with the exception of 140 Act Fund. That fund is a heavily diversified product. I think that um, if you take a comparative analysis, Anthony, um, people who don't have access to the types of investments that you make or that we make are investing their money often in far more risky products. So think about penny stocks, uh, biotech companies, whatever ticker they hear in a bar or on the train, as opposed to the types of investments that we're doing our secure debt, there's real estate backing it, there are other assets. Are there risks? Of course there are. Are there gonna be challenges? Of course there will be. We all experience them as we get to certain scale. But in the last six years, even less, Yield Street has funded a billion foreign loans, paid out over 600 million bucks. We've had our fair share of setbacks like every other manager, but that's what we're here for, right? And that's what we get paid for, that's what you get paid for. So I think the key is for Yield Street to continue to deliver quality education really try and explain to people in our content, what are the risks, how to understand them, and to sort of explain to them what that process looks like. Will everybody always completely understand it? I don't know, I think they do. I think they're accredited. I think they're sophisticated people. They read it. Um, will people be upset when something doesn't go the way they want it to? They always are, but that's, that's not gonna be any different than your institutional investors or our investors. So what do you think, Gil? What's the future look like to you? So I think, uh, first of all, I totally buy into Michael's uh, uh, vision and mission and the great work that, that Yield Street is doing. From our perspective, we're doing very similar things, but only at sort of the institutional level. So if you think about democratizing access to opportunities that did not exist before, at the core of our vision sits the, 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 what we call the lean bank. So you think about a JP Morgan, a city, a State Street, a Bank of America, you know, they are, they will have to, they already have to, and will continue to have to be much leaner from a use of capital, efficiency of capital and financial resources uh, for their day-to-day -day operations. So what we're doing is two things. The first thing is 
We're identifying all kinds of unnecessary positions, off, offsetting positions that they have on their books, and we're helping to eliminate them. And that happens now in trillions of dollars uh, every month. And like the world is, like the, every segment we're looking at is, is trillions of dollars of opportunities, basically almost like free money that can be eliminated and has huge impact on the uh, capital efficiency of the, real, of the trading relationship. The next thing we do is where you cannot compress it, can you now outsource it or partner with participants? Just like at Yield Street, they will go to the accredited um, investor. We would go with a Citibank uh, position and offer an asset manager. And it could be any, any asset manager. We're just dealing with the institutional uh, investors to now be the financing partner of the large bank. And obviously we're looking here like, you know, in, in the first month that we've done uh, the last issuance, we're getting close to a billion dollars and the numbers are, are uh, ginormous in this space. But basically allowing the balance sheet of banks and allowing the financing of banks in a large part to now be democratized to the asset managers on the planet that have plenty of cash but are looking for yield and will never have the infrastructure and the capabilities that a JP Morgan City or others have. So the investment that exists in for an equity prime broker or for uh, a foreign exchange platform that is, you know, this is billions, if not tens of billions of dollars that was invested by the banks, you cannot replicate that. Their distribution, you cannot replicate that. By the way, from a compliance and regulatory perspective, you cannot replicate the capabilities that they have. What they're missing is capital or, or the cheapest source of capital that exists elsewhere in the world and, and is abundant. Bring those together and everybody wins. It's good for the banks, it's good for people with capital, it's good for the clients. And from a regulatory perspective, a market structure perspective, this is exactly what the regulators want because it's a safe market, but also we're, we're bringing more capital that is diversified into the market. So Michael, are you listening? This is a former socialist that speaks about capitalism with the appropriate zealotry of a converted person. Okay, so, so mazel tov on that. He tasted it, by then. Yeah, he exactly. Tasted exactly. Yeah, but you know, very, Anthony, if you don't mind, I, I was thinking about, as Gil was talking about, two things that you were saying, right? So one, we start off earlier, you made a passionate commentary about sort of um, the wealth disconnect in America, right? And, and that is a real issue. And um, then it, it, sort it's of fueling, thought about- It's fueling all of this anger and nationalism and tribalism and everything, but yes, go. Go ahead. There's obviously different levels of that, right? Um, right. You know, poverty is, is a separate story. And then there's sort of the blue collar, which, which is where you, where you started. And I know that story um, all too well. And the problem is that if people don't have the ability to get ahead and to make more money and have their money work for them, then they're all going to end up at that same place, right? And that's really what's causing this disparity. People who can afford to get above their expenses and to have their money work for them have way more opportunity sets ahead of them and everyone else sort of falls below the line. Yes. And so when you take that and you take the question about sort of the risk to retail, so I was thinking about two things, right? So number one, if you look at, and I, I was looking for it if I had my slide, but I think it's just gonna to be too, uh, too cumbersome to find it and project it. But we used to talk about this slide in the earlier days of Yale Street, where if you look at sort of the, the general population of Americans from the ages of 18 to 80, and you look at their financial um, path, their journey over that, over that, those period of years, what you find is in the first set of years, call it 18 to late 20s, 
Most people have a ton of debt. They have auto debt, student debt, all that other stuff. In their 30s, they start to make a little money. They hit some stability. They have less debt. They have more um, sort of appropriate debt, whether it's a mortgage, et cetera. And then as they get older and older, they start to invest, be it they have their IRA, stocks, bonds, et cetera. The average entrance for an individual into alternatives was 65 years old. 65 years old. That doesn't give you a tremendous amount of time to build that up. Because of the technology and our capabilities, YieldTreat's average customer age is 42. That's a huge, huge number of years to get people to have that earnings working for them. The second thing I would say is, um, I think it's important that we ask ourselves like, hey, why hasn't alternatives been appropriately distributed to retail in the right way at the right fee level? And the answer isn't that it's not. Of course it is. All these banks, all these guys are packaging up and distributing it through FAs, right? The, the Edward Joneses of the world, the Charles Schwabs of the world, they're getting the same paper. They're just getting it three to 500 basis points, three to 600 basis points less because of every partner in the middle who has to be paid a fee for that distribution. So there's the wrap fee, the distribution fee, the banker's fee, et cetera. So what we're able to see now is disintermediating some of those costs, some of that process is delivering that value net to the investor. I think the question is over time, how will product design, so the actual investment product design evolve to make it better, safer, less risky, et cetera, for investors, or at least give them the choice to select different risk barometers. So are they gonna pick binary investments? Are they gonna pick fund level investments? Are they gonna pick something with liquidity? Are they gonna pick something without liquidity? I think that's really part, you know, what we have to think about more and, and less so about, hey, if it's a $500 million deal and you're getting a $100 million allocation and delivering that same trade to retail, isn't that you know, potentially a better risk reward opportunity than, than some of the other alternatives that they have? Yeah. Um, if I may, I just want to while we're, we're at it on, on, on structure. I, I just, so first of all, I'm, I'm a glass 90, 95% full kind of a guy. So I just want to, a couple of optimistic points here that I'd like to highlight. First of all, 12 years ago, the entire global financial system almost collapsed. Like we're on the verge of a collapse. And, and I, I do think that all the regulators that were part of and governments that were part of saving the system, they should all get medals for the work that they've done and, and in truly saving the system. And by the way, all of the taxpayers all over the world had to, or in many places in the world, had to bail out the banks. And I think that 10 to 12 years later, first of all, we need to acknowledge that we're in a completely different space, a different place. And, and look at what just happened in COVID with all of this horrific, totally unexpected, uh, you know, not just human suffering, but everything that was happening to the economy. We are not talking about any bank or any meaningful financial institution that's anywhere near a problem and, and the system was operating uh, uh, in, in, in full throttle. And I think that that is an amazing achievement that we should all feel good about. And, um, and we should make sure that we're continuously, every improvement, Yield Street and Capitalis and others, we're basically all standing on, on the shoulders of giants. And those giants are providing this infrastructure that operates, it works. And I think that we're in much, much better place and we need to make sure that that system continues to operate. Um, so that's the first thing. I think, I think there's a lot to celebrate, but 
Obviously, on the back of those changes, structural changes will have to happen. If you think about the big changes that have occurred in the past, deregulation of, of uh, the telecom industry, if you think about the invention of the internet, if you think about the invention of the iPhone or GPS for that matter, those things led to massive changes and those massive changes will come in the financial system as well, especially uh, in the capital markets and the B2B world in the years to come. The last thing I just wanna say is, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a, a very proud uh, citizen of Israel. I'm also a very proud citizen of the US uh, and that has been very good to me. Uh, and I just wanna caution us that while the system is not perfect here, I have to say as an immigrant and as somebody who, is, uh, who lives here all day long, but I travel abroad, I think there's still a lot to be proud of and there's a lot of good things in the system. And what you're doing, Michael, is amazing and there's a lot of work to do to improve. But I think our starting point is, is fantastic and this is still the place where you know, most nations will be looking up to and, and will wanna come here. So uh, you know, with all the criticism and everything that we have to improve, I, I'd, still be rather, I'd still rather have this conversation out of my office in New York City than, than elsewhere. Well, you know, you and I totally, totally agree with that. I, I think there's an amazing future for the country, but if we can calm down some of the emotional unrest and some of the racial tension by creating a fairer 100%. system. You know, so, so for me, I'm all about uneven outcomes. I love seeing the wealth that you guys have created and the value you've added to the society. But I am really for equal opportunity because we didn't control our parents or location of our birth or anything about our lives uh, until we got here. And if we could just create a better platform of equal opportunity, it'll dial down some of this tension. But you don't, you don't need to hear all my politics. We have to turn it over to John Darcy, John Moneybags Darcy, uh, who's got a ton of questions for you from the uh, audience and has a very terrible background in the Skybridge offices, getting a zero out of 10. It's from your the company, Raider. Anthony. I'm just like, this the, 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 room, the room Raider judges are piping in, you know, zero out of 10. Why don't you put a printer behind you or something like that just to spruce things up a little bit? I'll bring go, a stapler go. in next time. I think it'll go, add a little ambiance. Go, go ahead, John. I know you got questions from the audience. <clears throat> Yeah, the, the first question we have is around regulation and about, and we'll start with Gil, the sociologist. This is how the question was framed. Do you think uh, financial institutional regulators have in tandem kept up with fintech's growth in terms of understanding its risks, its applications, its benefits, and uh, how has that impacted the growth of the industry and how will it continue to impact the growth of the industry? Yeah, so I think it's tricky. Look, when you're... Uh innovating is a very easy thing. I come up with an idea and I'm just going to do it. Uh, but if you're a regulator, there is much more to think about. You know, I had the, the, the honor and the pleasure of dealing with uh, many of the regulators uh, globally. They're thoughtful. They're trying to stay uh, up to speed. But, you know, they're just the regulator. There's so much that's happening. And until it reaches their radar screen and they really understand and they understand all the implications, et cetera. So the short answer is for the important things, I think that the answer is absolutely yes. You know, if you were to talk about and if you look at the reaction of regulators over time, for instance, to cryptocurrencies, you know, they definitely have had a very thoughtful and have a very thoughtful approach and they're keeping a close eye on it. And at the time when, when uh, you know, there was uh, a lot of noise around uh, 
um, you know, uh, high frequency trading and, and flash boys and all of that. And so big movements and big things that are happening from a fintech perspective, the regulators are definitely uh, getting educated. They're thinking about these things. And, and I have not observed them stifling innovation uh, by any means. But in the end of the day, fintech is very important and is very different to you know, and not, not, to, not to, to minimize, uh, you know, other industries, but it's very different to hailing a cab or staying in somebody's hotel. I mean, we're talking about the trust in the system. We're talking about sovereignty of nations. You know, this is what we're talking about. You could talk about fairness and, and society, but for this, one of the things that you absolutely have to have is a, um, uh, is a trustworthy financial system. So we want the regulators to be thoughtful, we want them to, uh, uh, we want to work in tandem and responsibly with them. And I think that for the big things so far, while I've, they have not been stifling innovation, but they have been thoughtful and, and, and where necessary, um, they have been also um, uh, proactive in, in their approach. So overall, I think that they've been uh, very good uh, in, in the various branches uh, of the regulators. Michael, I want to go to you with a different question, another audience question. You know, obviously the pandemic has put a strain on a lot of different financial assets. Uh, do you think that there is any sort of private capital bubble that exists? And, and uh, how do you build products within the Yield Street ecosystem to factor in you know, your views on financial markets and areas that might be overheated? It's a great question. Um, I think that it's in many ways even more applicable pre-COVID. So leading into COVID, there's just a tremendous amount of money available in the system and yields were being compressed across the board. You see it in the leveraged loan market, you see it in the private capital markets, you see it venture, you're seeing it now in the SPAC market. Um, so there, there's definitely a lot of money out there to be invested. I would say a few things. One is, you know, we talk about investments and sort of, you know, the investment ecosystem as like, you know, a specific area, it's not, it's enormous, right? So you got to think about it at an asset class level at an, at, you know, an industry level, at a sizing level. So for example, when you look at, um, let's look at the public markets for a second, just because they can give us a, you know, a, a better analysis with the leveraged loan market, the top hundred names have all rebounded significantly from where they were in March, but the SMEs in the leveraged loan market, because there's less efficiency of capital, there's far more opportunity there with technically dislocated pricing. You have the same thing in the capital markets. You have a significant number of players that are sort of licking their wounds to some extent and working through their portfolios and understanding what's going on and how COVID's impacting. I was on a call this morning with our investment heads and uh, the guy who runs our real estate business, Mitch Rosen, was telling me about some of the feedback he had from some of the um, real estate bridge lenders out in the market. And he quoted five names that haven't written a deal since February. Right. So they have a tremendous amount of dry powder. They have other areas to focus on, whether it's defaults or other credits in their book. So there is always going to be opportunity. I actually think, contrary to the notion of a bubble, that right now non-bank lenders are really in an amazing seat. Um, there is still you know, concern around the market as to how much credit to extend to small and medium-sized businesses to you know, your 200, 500, $1 billion shop. And that means that non-bank lenders and platforms like Yield Street can access better quality risk at better pricing. I see you know, daily now that when you think back to early March and late February, 
where we were pricing transactions, you're 100, close to even sometimes 150 or 200 basis points above that, right? The, we just launched a deal as part of a roughly $100 million syndicate to a two plus billion dollar revenue business. It's a six month trade with a 10% annualized yield to investors. Um, B minus B3 company. Candidly, we wouldn't have seen that deal six months ago or eight months ago, right? There would have been way too many players doing that same deal at 6%. So do I think there's a bubble in certain asset classes? Yes. Do I think that the, it's affecting opportunity? No, I think there's better opportunity now. The risks are going to be different across the board, depending on what asset class you're looking to invest in and what, where you sit in the capital structure and what the underlying collateral is. But I think the time to invest in, in debt and sort of technically dislocated distress, meaning in areas where there's a lack of um, efficiency of capital is now. It's what we saw in 2009 and 10. I think it's going to be fantastic timing. I would say, John, on, on the same questions, just on the institutional side, from our perspective, definitely, I don't know that there's a bubble, but there is basically infinite amounts of capital in the world just looking desperately for yield. And you're looking at, you know, issuances in Europe in negative yield. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we've issued and we've seen our clients issue at unbelievably low uh, rates uh, historically. And even through uh, COVID and, and where it moved a little bit, it, it basically bounced back and a plus sum over a very uh, short period of time. Uh, so that's why we're so excited because we know that uh, the origination capacity of the large banks to such investors um, is basically infinite. I mean, we're talking about trillions of dollars of new investment opportunities. We know that the capital is there looking for returns and ideally we'll be able to make those meet. So hence, we don't think it's a bubble because you know, that, that there are true destinations. You don't need something to artificially uh, inflate in, in value because there is real value there and there is effectively infinite supply if you're able to structure it right and to present the right opportunities. But there is, we see it everywhere. We see it in venture capital. We see it in, in every institutional asset class. There is just tons of capital looking for you. I want to leave you guys both with a question about just the future of the financial industry. So, you know, you talked, uh, Michael, about the value of disintermediation and how that cost savings is passed along to the, the end investor. And that's obviously a positive thing for the investor themselves, but it's also going to lead probably to job losses on Wall Street uh, and the wealth management industry potentially shrinking as, as technology enables investors to have more direct access to these products that have typically lived in a more opaque environment, uh, you know, behind a wall of a bank or a wealth management shop. What do you think ultimately happens to the wealth management industry, the financial industry from a banking perspective, Gil, you can comment on that. Where do we ultimately end up? It feels like you, know, you have these fintech companies that are disrupting. You also have banks that are trying to use technology to make themselves more efficient. What's the ultimate destination for the banking industry, for the wealth management industry and the financial industry as a whole when, you know, uh, fi when fintech sort of becomes mature? We'll start with Michael on that one. A loaded question. Um, just trying to synthesize it a bit. So right. I think, um, you know, a lot of people talk about job loss as a result of innovation and technology. Uh, I challenge that. I think sort of you look back uh, in history, especially right before COVID, we were at our lowest unemployment rate um, in, in decades, if not ever. And we have more innovation and more technology than we've had before. So I think that 
jobs um, shift, professions shift, things change, society adapts, uh, people do different things. So I, don't, I wouldn't go right away and say that, hey, you know, just because Tesla's out there, you know, Ford's no longer can exist, all of a sudden Tesla's got an enormous employee base. So people still need, uh, you know, human output and human productivity to, to help us move forward. Uh, you know, Yield Street is growing rapidly. We have, you know, over 100 people now and we're going to keep growing. So, um, so I, I, would, I would argue with that respectfully for a moment. Uh, more broadly, I think the notion that, um, you know, fintech companies are, are going to pound their chest and Goldman Sachs and Citibank and JP Morgan are dis- going to disappear is, uh, is ridiculous, frankly. I think the, the bigger question is to understand what is the consumer journey today and where does it have to go? Like, and what I mean by that is, um, if I was in my office now, I would pull out of my drawer. I always keep uh, two cell phones in my office and I ask people, you know, 15, 20 years ago, what was your favorite phone? And it's either a Nokia or a StarTech. And when you look back then, I remember like what we were striving for every time a new Nokia came out was a smaller phone as long as my fingers could play Snake. And, you know, we went from a StarTech to a V-phone to have even smaller. And now our iPhones are getting bigger and bigger. So there's something more behind that, right? What is that? I think as a consumer, we were seeking task-based efficiency. We wanted each thing in our life to perform as efficiently as possible. So my phone is just going to make phone calls and have text messages. My Palm Pilot is going to have my contact thing and whatever else I had in there. My BlackBerry is going to handle my emails and my BBM Messenger. And today, we don't seek task-based efficiency. We seek utility as consumers. We want to do as many things as possible with as few things as possible. And so when you think about the way you experience other areas in your life, shopping, Amazon, et cetera, we look to do as much as we can in one place. If I asked most of the people on this call, how do you track your PA, it would be I have one to three banks, I trade in this many places, I have this many managers, I do this, this, that, and the other. That is not an efficient way that in 2020 and 2021, we should be managing our money. So the consumer journey has to become much more inclusive, much more efficient, digitally native. And I, as a consumer, have to feel that I'm getting the best options available to me at my fingertips. So if I want to invest in bonds, I want to be able to get them direct and cheap or the best way possible. If I want to invest in alts, in venture, in PE, why can't I? Just because I don't have $10 million, I can't come into your fund? That doesn't make sense anymore because technology is an equalizer. So what I think ultimately happens is like any other industry, you're going to go through a phase and that phase is going to be now. Okay. When we, we, when we started at the top of the call, I said there wasn't a tremendous amount of innovation in fintech. So if you look at 2010, at, at 2000, sorry, 2010 to 2020, and you look at the number of IPOs, unicorn IPOs for tech companies, there are only two in the financial services world, two. None are in wealth management. They're both in like debt creation, okay? So when you think about where our world is going, for those of you who track our industry, CB Insights has this list of sort of the top 250 fintechs. There are many companies there that are now coming to the cusp of a unicorn status or real scale. So I believe that 2020 to 2030 is the golden age of fintech and 2010 to 2020 was the golden age of tech. So we're gonna see a tremendous amount of change now. You're gonna have the survival of the fittest, especially as it relates to COVID. A lot of people are gonna have run out of cash. You're not gonna be able to keep growing and building. And so what you'll see here are a couple of guys who can come out and really build incredible businesses that are gonna be your equivalents of your Facebooks and your Teslas and your Ubers. 
you're going to see a lot of acquisitions where banks are really going to partner with different players and start to utilize that technology and partner with and appreciate distribution infrastructure. In my world, it's going to be appreciating a new investor dynamic that they've been chasing for a long time, getting closer to retail, getting more diversification, cheaper cost of capital, longer duration capital. And Gill's world, it's going to be how do we connect deposit wealthy and deposit poor banks? How do we make capital markets more efficient? How do players at all levels able to get access much more efficiently? That's what I think you know, the future holds. Sorry if it was a little long, but it was a pretty loaded question. That's great. The future is long. Gil, how about you? Yeah, so look, I think the one thing that existed pre-COVID and was accelerated on the back of COVID is, is software indeed is eating the world. And you will have more technology, you'll have more automation, and that technology will enable further democratization and collaboration and so on and so forth. Which means not that banks are going to disappear, they won't disappear. And I would never bet against JP Morgan City or, or State Street or, or, or Morgan Stanley or others. Um, but I do think that in their current form, they will have to, and they have been evolving. And look at, look at uh, you know, Morgan Stanley's acquisition of E-Trade and look at State Street acquisition of Charles River Development and so on and so forth. Banks are becoming technology themselves. And by the way, we talk a lot about the disruptive nature of fintech. Plaid, obviously amazing innovation. Where is it now? It's part of Visa, right? So I think that if, if we think long-term, what's happening is further digitization and transformation of the market to a much more open, connected, collaborative, technology-driven uh, uh, markets all over the world. It's a good thing that ultimately is going to make the markets better, it's going to create jobs, but certain jobs definitely will go away and others are going to grow. I think that overall, that's, that's the big thing. Banks are going to be a huge part of it. There's going to be room for many other companies that will collaborate with the banks, that are going to be acquired by the banks. And, 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 but in the B2B space, I think you're going to find less that are going to compete with the banks because servicing, the large asset managers, the large corporates in the world, the level of regulation, technology, connectivity, uh, global presence that you need to have, membership in exchanges and so on and so forth, that is too complex, I think, and too expensive for FinTech to buy. So this is where you do need the global banks. They have a huge and very important role to play. They will be there forever, but they're going to be different. And I think that they themselves are basically going to become more and more technology companies they will become fintechs themselves more and more and have been already, but we're going to see that uh, uh, more and more together with a, a, a uh, much broader and collaborative ecosystem of fintechs and independent companies that work with them, work uh, uh, in collaboration uh, with them, uh, et cetera. So the banks themselves are becoming platforms and fintechs themselves. Well, fantastic. Thank you both so much for joining us. We hope to have you in person at one of our future SALT conferences. I know Michael was in Las Vegas last year. We were talking really before we went live. Guys. Maybe we'll have you in Abu Dhabi. You know, you guys are both, uh, you are from Israel, and I know Michael visits Israel. Maybe it's a great time to get you guys to Abu Dhabi, given the, the recent uh, Israel-UAE peace deal, which hopefully fosters some great innovation uh, you know, cross-border. I was there not too long ago. It's a beautiful place. I'll tell you this. You won't have to twist my arm. All right. I agree with you. Anthony, you got a final word? Uh, just it was a great conversation, guys. Thank you. And, yeah, we'll definitely get out there and uh, hopefully back to Vegas. And uh, we'll see you guys soon. And 
since you're both in the city, we'll give you a tour of our office. There are better parts of our office, uh, not necessarily the spot where John's sitting, but I'll show you the good stuff. Anthony I'll didn't want me to infect his beautiful corner office, so he put me in the broom closet. Stay out of my office. Stay out of my office. I'm going to... I'm gonna spray you with mace, okay? You're gonna look like Joe Pesci at Home Alone if you open the door to my office, okay? Stay out of my office. All right, Guys, well, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you, man. Take thank care. You.